Hello folks. I've been thinking a little bit about Donna Haraway and what she has to say about robotics and information. I think it's pretty interesting on that and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. So just to remind you, you can find my lectures on her on podcast, I think, number four. But to explain who she is first, to give you a sense of what Haraway's philosophy is and what her contribution to technology is. Haraway is a, I suppose, renowned feminist scholar and philosopher, philosopher of technology, and she has a reputation for challenging conventional notions of identity, technology, and our relationship with the natural world. And her works had a profound impact on feminism, posthumanism, science studies, I suppose. Her most famous work was Cyborg Manifesto. She wrote that in 1985. And that essay gives us this famously torrid picture, I think, of the possibilities and pitfalls of the coming cyber revolution. There, she famously envisions humans as cyborgs, entities that are part human and part machine, organic and inorganic, fleshy interfaces. The basic metaphysics is that we are all connected to technology and this connection fundamentally changes us. It fundamentally alters our understanding of self, identity, relationships, class, race, gender. And within that, information plays a crucial role because the way she classifies information is in a metaphysical sense. She thinks of information as highlighting the process of our material world or the processes of our material world and how that constitutes our identity, how information flows between humans, machines, the environment, blurring the boundaries between them and in constant flux. The cyborg as a metaphor then is suitable because it challenges traditional notions of identity. She argues the cyborg represents a fusion of really diverse elements in the same way that, say, information operates in terms of the transmission and transformation of data. In particular, Haraway has a scientific background in biology. She looks at how our reception of genetics feeds into discourses on systems theory and information, and how that then transforms our self-understanding. And that's why she thinks the cyborg is a valuable metaphor, I suppose, because in terms of how information flows, the cyborg is the being that incorporates both inorganic and organic or natural and artificial elements. And for that to occur, there has to be some kind of information transferal between technological interfaces and interfaces between social, cultural and political components, say. So something like cybernetics then, which focuses on the study of systems, feedback loops, communication, does play a pivotal role for her. And I think Haraway sees that sort of biological, informational cybernetics as an essential framework for understanding, well, the interconnectedness of humans, machines, the environment and nature. What she's trying to articulate is what happens when information gets written into the very coding of our being, of our life. Now, in her earliest writings, she has a paper called uh, Situated Knowledges, and it's easily accessible on the internet. Haraway talks to us about the constructed nature of science, especially with regard to questions of biology or scientific conceptions of biology. And she's trying to 
demonstrate the historicality of scientific construction. And I suppose that's a that's a bit of an abstract way of putting it. What it means is that science is something that historically evolves. It's not something ahistorical. Science is not something immutable. In fact, quite the opposite. It's very mutable. And the picture of the world it gives us is of a very mutable world. And what Haraway is suggesting, especially in those early essays, especially in situated knowledges, is that when science works, it's not as neutral as we might think it is. Our basic point is that things like gender, race, class, positionality, all of those things inflict upon our scientific pursuits or scientific activities an understanding of ourselves. The picture of ourselves that science tends to put out there is not a natural one, and it's not necessarily neutral. Now, we have to be careful. Obviously, those of you who are of an empirical bent will probably have klaxons going off in your mind saying, this is just the social construction of knowledge, alternative facts, a general disdain and liberality with the truth. And I don't think that's what Haraway necessarily thinks. I don't think she's disputing that we can call things facts. I think she's trying to draw attention to the constructed nature of facts, or the idea that facts are made. Her concern is that truth is something that is made. It is made in concrete practices of particular things and particular situations doing particular practices. So in some sense, it's people that make the truth. So meaning is always a situated knowledge. It's always situated meaning. It's a making and never simply a representation. And by representation, I mean some type of abstraction, a representing of a set of affairs as if they were neutral and disinterested and objective. So that's important to acknowledge, I think. She has a more complicated idea of truth than is afforded to her sometimes. And that view is that she just thinks that truth is perspectival, like a kind of subpar Nietzsche, where truth is just a matter of interpretation or truth is subjective or truth is perspectival. And Haraway is quite keen to say that truth is not just a question of your perspective. That's not her position. If anything, her idea is that it's anti-perspective is how perspectives and situations are put in contact with each other, into contact zones and generate a truth. Still though, having said that, Haraway acknowledges herself that she could have been perhaps been a little bit clearer on that in her earlier work. And in turn, she has later said that she thinks that lack of clarity made it easy for her critics to accuse her of relativism and cynicism and cheap scepticism. So it might become clearer if I look at one of her examples. She's interested in the way science changes across history and how the central organising metaphors of science change across history. One of the things she looks at is the functionalist notion of biology So the idea was in the early part of the 20th century and perhaps into the post-war period too, there was the idea that we could understand biological organisms in a functional sense. So in the latter part of the 20th century, from the mid-20th century onwards, say, there was a shift from functional biology to systems theory of biology, from looking at organs to genetics, if you like. Now, let's start with the the functional picture of biology. And I think this is an interesting one because it's very common sense, or it has become common sense. 
we often forget that what is now common sense was once upon a time heresy. Now, if you think about the body, say the human body, in terms of the metaphors we use, and they are metaphors, we think of the body in a very instrumental sense, we think of it in a very organic sense, we think of it as a machine. So we think of something like the heart, and this goes back to perhaps the earliest days of biology. What do we say that a heart is? The heart is a pump. A pump that pumps blood around the body, which allows oxygen to go to all the other parts of the body. Or, if we think about losing weight, say, we think about that in a very mechanistic sense, in terms of inputs and outputs. So, if I asked you, how do you lose weight? And the answer you would say to me is that it's really easy, wouldn't you? And that's all you need to do is ensure your calorific input does not exceed your calorific output. And that's all you need to do. That's it. So basically, (laughs) eat less, move more. Of course, easier said than done, though. In the UK, people say, if they're hungry, a common expression is, I need to feed the machine. What all this tells us, I think, is that we think of our organisms in a very functional sense, in a very instrumental sense, yes, but also in a sense of hierarchy. There are certain organs which are more important than, than others. The vital organs is even what we call them. You know, the heart, the brain, the liver, things which, if you didn't have them, you wouldn't be there, you'd be dead, basically. And that's roughly where we are in terms of the common sense view of biology. But biology... Now, since the days of Paley has radically changed. We've had the uptake of evolutionary theory and genetics with Crick and Watson in the 20th century. And that perhaps might not have seeped down into common sense or common expressions just yet, but it perhaps might be getting there. And Haraway, and I think this is interesting, Haraway wants us to be attentive to the mutations of scientific understanding and more importantly how that mutation of scientific understanding feeds into our own self-understanding. So she thinks that in the post-war period biology, the, the switch to genetics or let's say the enrichment of evolutionary theory with genetics has led to a very informational self-picture of ourselves. So with developments In genetics, we get a picture of how biology works that is, in a sense, informational. And it's really interesting because with information, the picture we have of ourselves is more universal. This is more abstract, I suppose, less situated, if you wanted to put it in Haraway's terms. Information in and of itself is quantifiable element, a basic unit, which is of course is the gene, but what it allows is replicability or universal translation. If we take something like DNA, and Haraway is very explicit about this, DNA is a master metaphor, it's a, a master molecule. She calls it the code of codes, and it's the foundation from which all other understandings come from. Haraway's thought is that the history of genetics in the post-war period have 
boil down to the idea that gene equals information. This picture of the human being as informational also then tends to feed into the idea that we can think of humans, and it's not just humans for, for Haraway, because she's a famous post-humanist thinker. It's also other animals and other creatures. But we start to think of biological life, say, in terms of populations, systems, networks. And I think for Haraway, there's something perversely mystical about that. There's something religious underneath that thought. It's a type of fideism, because we're doing exactly what the story in the Bible says. It's a version of the Tower of Babel. It's the pursuit of a common language or a universal language, especially in system theories of biology. What we get is a view of biological life that's purely informational and an understanding of the objective world in terms of things like coding, uh, information signals, genetic information, input and output. And these furnish us with the models which we think of ourselves. And they're very representational models. They're, they're quite abstract. They're not situated in Haraway's. And I think for post-humanist philosophers, for example, or Haraway, they want to challenge that. They want to acknowledge the reality of science, technology and engineering, and the, the things that they do, the processes that they inaugurate, absolutely. But they also want to contest the purported neutrality of the genetic model and the picture it gives us of ourselves. And Haraway is quite interesting on this. It is a matter of faith to say, I believe the science or follow the science or I believe in evolution. Or when she questions that, she's not saying those things haven't got a purchase on reality, but she is saying that it turns science into a matter of belief. And you're missing a trick, really, if you do that. Because if you're saying something like the science of evolution is a question of belief, then it's a question about faith. It's not a question about reality. And that's what's important, actually, for Haraway. It's all about reality. And in these informational models, this form of genetics, these give us a sense of ourselves as abstract, neutral, disinterested, when we're very much the opposite. You can then later, although I'm less interested in here, ask about political questions about that. How does that feed into broader cultural questions? Questions of consumption, questions of commodification, questions of ownership, privacy, consumers of these things. But I'm interested in what it means for how we understand things. How do we understand human energies, humans' hopes, aspirations, dispositions? And if we do it in a simply informational sense, then what actually are we doing? Well, then we think of ourselves as parts of a system, our nodes in a system. And that can in turn give rise to an understanding of nature, the environment, humans, as beings that are constituted purely as forms of informational flow or exchange or genetic coding. So we need to change the picture of ourselves or we need to change representational pictures of ourselves because it's a very abstract way of thinking. When people get lost in culture wars and worry about conspiracy theories and truths and alternative facts, it's about, it's not really about the facts themselves. I think Haraway says this in one of her interviews. It's more about the stake of one's internal 
conviction. Because if all matters are just a question of internal conviction, subjective perspective, then they have nothing to do with the world. And you have left the domain of uh, of the world, the world itself, of reality. of Or the world coming to be, I think, would be how, how I would put it. Or worlding is her idea. And that's why she turns... T- to the metaphor of the of the cyborg in the mid eighties, and just to be careful, when Haraway is talking about the cyborg, she's not talking, I think, about robots, or at least that common image we have of robots, where you think of a robot as as a kind of hunkering, lumbering machine, something you get in a, a bad sci-fi or a good sci-fi. Incidentally, that picture of the of the robot probably comes from a functionalist account of biology, the idea that. A robot is in emulation, say, of a human being, but to do that, it has to have a central processing unit or a computer for the brain, which takes in information from the external world and transmits it through a, ner- a central nervous system of wires, and then that transfers to the brain or the central processing unit, the CPU, and that then in turn generates commands and instructions to our our hands and our legs and uh, our feet and our eyes or whatever. Haraway's idea of the of the cyborg is something that disrupts that functionalist picture of biology, but also I think the more informational picture of biology. The cyborg is more figurative than say a literal machine. What the cyborg does for Haraway is give expression to the partiality of knowledge, the situatedness of knowledge. And that then in turn can engender things like irony, intimacy, and not necessarily good things, and also perversity, transgression. And there is something troubling, something perverse in the cyborg, and it needs to be that, it needs to be a disruption, a transgression. A better word perhaps would be something that undermines social conviction, that undermines taboo, anything really that undermines the smooth running of the system. And it reveals that meaning and factuality and live factuality is about redefining. For Haraway, it's quite revolutionary, the thought of the cyborg. And Haraway is a feminist socialist. She is Marxist in many regards. And the cyborg is about embracing emancipatory forms of thought or remastering mastery is how she would think of it. The objective is to engage in a revolution of social relations in the domestic sphere, the cultural sphere, the political sphere, the economic sphere striking right at the heart of the opposition of nature and culture, or nature and nurture. And now we are in a situation of nature and nurture. Or if you like, the binary has collapsed, or is no longer meaningful. The cyborg is about releasing the types of relationality implicit in our everyday lives, or a more diverse, a more plural, a more attuned form of relationality, which advances in genetics, the suturing of genetics to information theory and system theory and even complexity theory, what we actually get is the idea of organisms or biological life forms and humans as machines within machines within networks of machines. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There can be good things that come of it. I can come up with enhancements in medicine, in biology, in psychology, and things like stem cell research. So we have to be critical and constructive when it comes for cyborg thinking. If we are understanding the human being as network though, one of the things that we should be cautious about is its immaterialism. Now Haraway is a great materialist. 
of a, a very idiosyncratic form of materialism, granted, but she is a materialist nonetheless. And I think her concern, her demand that we be prudent is that in some sense these informational systems, these genetic modelings make us abstract or independent of materiality in some way. These scientific pictures affect what we are, what we think of what we are, and what we think of how we can become other than what we are, especially where they feed into technology and computing. These shifts in language that we get from radical developments in science, they are not nothing. They are not just abstract and neutral and disinterested. They very much affect how we think of ourselves. They seep into culture, they seep into values, they seep into politics. We go from an expression like feeding the machine to informational language or computer language in our everyday life, and we probably haven't even recognised it yet. If you think about it, it's probably not that shocking. How many movies have been rebooted? That's a computer term. Algorithm is used metaphorically to describe step-by-step processes or routines in decision-making or problem-solving. We talk about downloading and uploading. We say bandwidth for a capacity to interpret. We talk about cache, upgrading, drag-and-drop are all expressions that suffuse our everyday speech. The point is that our thought is becoming more computerized, And this is counterintuitively, I suppose, leading to a form of immaterialization. Why? Well, because we lose substance. We lose the body. We lose fleshiness. We lose worlding. We have a being without body. And that's what the genetic picture of biology has given us in some way. We have a being without a body. That is, the body is, the organism is replicable as any other machine, independent of where we are in space, time, geographic locale. We become independent of our own materiality. Instead, Haraway asks us to think of our systems in a more non-linear way, as dynamic, emergent, and the consequences of that then can feed into a more empathic ethics, a more empathic politics. In a way, Haraway is a type of realist. A curious one, but a realist, I think. And that's what the cyborg is about. She's not saying that we can undo centuries of technological development and go back to the land or whatever. She's acknowledging that the cyborg is a contested phenomenon. It holds dangers and possibilities. What it shows us is that the sort of being we are, the sort of technological being we've become, is something that is continually in flux. And in the internet age, the idea that a self is refragmented, reconstituted again and again and again is becoming more and more common sense every second, every time we tweet, every time we post on social media, <laughs> every time we make a podcast and send it into the the great inferno of uh, podcasts in the sky. We need to accept that for Haraway. We need to be real about it and we need to think about it. And that's what a philosophy is. I suppose that's what all philosophy is in, in one sense. It's a way of thinking or a meta-reflection on the ways our thoughts emerge and how we transform them. And she is asking us to be mindful about the way technologically deterministic language informs that thought. But how does that help us or how concretely does that make for better, more flourishing 
less cruel lives? And the way we can find the answer to that question is, I suppose, through Haraway's feminism. And what she would ask is, do these tools, do they enhance women's lived experience? Do they enhance women's ability to develop, to cultivate their emotionality, to cultivate their rationality, to cultivate their freedom, their potentiality? And if that is yes, then we can say that perhaps our cyborg natures are living more fulfilled lives, more attuned to the world as it becomes. So to finish, what I find interesting about Haraway is her commitment to reality, to metaphysics if you like. Reality is not a question of belief for Haraway. Reality is about worlding, about inhabiting, about being there, yet also acknowledging the contingency of things, but how things hold together. And if we can be attuned to that, that then gives us a sense of presence, a sense of how our meaning, our embodiment, our flesh, our materiality, our environment, the very earth itself are conjoined. They draw on each other, sustain each other, and they live and die with each other, as she puts it herself. And I will conclude with some words from Haraway herself, because I think that that gets to the heart of the matter. Haraway says, and I quote, I am sick to death of bonding through kinship and the family, and I long for models of solidarity and human unity and difference rooted in friendship, work, partially shared purposes, intractable collective pain, inescapable mortality, and persistent hope. Next time. <laughs>